Hi everyone, it's Bill Black, the Exit Coach from the Exit Coach Radio Show. You know, one of the biggest questions I get on the show is what exactly goes into a business exit plan and when should I start creating mine? Well, I always tell people that the best time to start was five years ago, but the next best time is now because you never know when you might need it. So we put together a free report that describes what an exit plan is and what you should know. You can get it free by texting EXIT PLAN with no spaces to 44222. That's EXIT PLAN to 44222. Again, text EXIT PLAN to 44222. Welcome to the Exit Coach Radio Show, the show for baby boomer business owners who are looking for cutting-edge information as they plan their 3- to 10-year business succession and exit. Every week, we interview top professional advisors for their best tips, strategies, and precautions so you can be well-planned. And don't miss our one-minute Exit Coach tip of the day on ExitCoachRadio.com. And now, here's your host, the Exit Coach, Bill Black. Thank you so much for joining me once again today. Uh, This is uh, an interesting topic we're going to be talking about. Uh, I know that uh, of all the things you do today, at some point you're going to be in a position where you need to persuade someone to do something. And, you know, uh, when you talk about exit planning, every day when I talk to business owners and they're talking about, well, I have a buyer that might be interested, they are fully engaged in persuading the the person that might be buying their business, that their business is a, uh, a jewel instead of a rock. Okay, And so we're going to be talking today once again with uh, Patrick Renwazi from uh, SalesBrain, uh, co-founder of that organization up in San Francisco. And he's written a book, co-written a book, called The per- Persuasion Code, The Science of Human Persuasion. Now, we've already had an interview once with him, and we talked more about the, the science behind all of this. So today we're going to be talking about more uh, real-life examples, uh, how you can capture, convince, and close, and use science in your, uh, to your advantage. Uh, Patrick, wel- welcome once again. Thanks so much for joining me again today. Good morning, Bill, and thank you for having me on your show. Uh, thank you for coming back because, you know, last time we talked, uh, it was very interesting. We got a lot of great comments from people saying, you know, that's the kind of stuff I want to hear more about because, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm always having to uh, do certain things in life, and one of those is, you know, persuade people. And a lot of times we find that people are using old, outdated information and you have a very interesting book, The Persuasion Code. Before we get um, involved, too involved in the, the topic of the day, tell us a little bit more about you and your background in sales brain. Just bring our, our listeners up to date. Sure. So as you can hear, uh, I was not born in California. I was actually born in France, and uh, I was a nerd. I got a <laughs> master's from the National Institute of Applied Sciences in France, Lyon, and it's a sister university with the MIT. So my expertise was in what's called the complex sales. I was with a computer company called Silicon Graphics for many years, and I sold very expensive and very complicated stuff. And when you do this, you have to convince a lot of people. You have to persuade all the time. You have to persuade people you need to get an appointment. Then you have to persuade people you need to get an appointment, not with them, but with their boss. And then, so you're constantly trying to persuade. And then I realized that Persuasion is, is as much an art as it is a science. But being the nerd that I am, I, I don't like the artistic part because art is not replicable when science is. So the purpose of my life for the last 20 years has been to come up with a 100% scientific process of persuasion. 
And so I wrote a very first book on this about 20 years ago. It was called Neuromarketing, or How Do You Apply you know, Neuroscience to Sales and Marketing? But then our last book is really the focus is on persuasion. And of course, as you can imagine, persuading people is a very, very complex process. In fact, it is so complex that scientists have been able to isolate 188 rules of why people do not make rational decisions. So if you think about it, there are 188 cognitive rules that explains why homo sapiens is not rational. So how do you deal with that? You, know, you have to think about it. We're always trying to influence the brain of our audiences, and we think that people will make somewhat of a rational decision. But the brain is not a linear device. Linear device means that if you get a stimulus to the brain, you'll get a certain response. If you wait five minutes, and if the brain was rational, and you would get the same stimulus, you should get the same response. But the brain is not rational, meaning that the second time you give the same, the same stimulus, you'll get a different response. And again, there is a world out there of scientists, researchers, that have established 188 rules of what happens in the brain when you know, we send a stimulus, we get a response. So what we've done, and again, we've been at it for about 20 years, right? We've created a model that simplifies these rules and that gives people a simple process that they can apply when they want to persuade others. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And, you know, it's, it's not um, surprising what you say, but to have quantified it uh, and, and to come up with 180, well, 188 rules, that's pretty amazing um, of why it's not uh, the human being does not have a rational decision uh, making apparatus or so is it because you know 188 we don't have time to go into all of those but what are some <laughs> of those what are some of the the rules that really pop out as you as you research them sure uh, but before I tell you more about those rules you have to understand that at the end of the day you can explain everything from an evolutionary perspective in other words if you look at the brain Today, we don't have one brain, we have two brains. On the outside part of the brain, we have what's called the neocortex, or the new brain, or what we call the rational brain. This is what makes us uniquely human, and this is where we think that we make rational decisions. But deeper below, we have what's called the primal brain. And that primal brain drives our decisions unconsciously, more predictably than any rational stuff. In fact, you know, there are several researchers that have established that, and, and both of them uh, I mean, there are at least two of them that gotten the Nobel Prize in economy. So in 2002, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economy, and he wrote a book called Think Fast and Slow. So he talks about two systems in the brain, the fast brain and the slow brain. The fast brain is that unconscious primal brain. The slow brain is the brain that makes us smart, but which is only a decision influencer. So he won the Nobel Prize for demonstrating that system one or the primal brain or the unconscious still drives our decision more predictably than anything rational. And then one of his students, a guy by the name of Richard Thaler, won the Nobel Prize also in economy in 2017. He was a student of Kahneman, and he wrote a book called Nudge. And the whole promise, they, they are experts, if you want, in what's called the system one. So what we have done here at SalesBrain is, is we have taken their research and we've put it in the context of sales and marketing. But, but to go back to your original question of those biases, uh, there are many of them. I'll, I'll give you just one. 
Uh, one of the biases is called the rhyming as a reason effect. The rhyming as a reason effect. Now, I'm sure you remember the story of O.J. Simpson, do you? Yes, of course, of course. So, you know, O.J. was uh, accused of killing his wife. There were a lot of different evidence that were against him, but there was one evidence that was helping him. And do you know how he got out of jail? Although 99% of everything pointed to the fact that he was guilty. So do you remember, do you remember what happened? Do you remember the, if it doesn't, the tagline? If it, that, doesn't, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. That's right. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Now, that rhymes, and guess what? That rhyme was able to convince a lot of people in the jury that he was innocent when everything else was pointing to his guilt. So this is called the rhyming as a reason effect. What does that mean? That means if you tell people something that sounds good, something which musically will be appealing to the primal brain, then people will believe it against all rational things. I'll give you another example. If you tell people cautions and measure bring you riches, people don't really believe it. You know, again, cautions and measure bring you riches. People don't believe that. If you slightly tweak it to say cautions and measures bring you treasures, then guess what? People will believe it. And again, you can explain that from the primal brain perspective, which is the primal brain of your audience do not understand what you say. However, they understand the music in what you say. So sadly enough, it is not what you say that is important. It is the how you say it because of the rhyming as a reason effect. So Interesting. you just discovered so. now one of the 188 cognitive biases. Again, it's very complicated. I'm making you know, it's complex, but I'm trying to make it very simple. And what you really need to look at if you're a guy in, in sales and marketing, you need to look at is my sales and marketing strategy appealing to the primal brain of my audience, appealing to their uh, unconscious? And again, it's complicated, but if you have a process, that's going to make that much, much easier. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and it makes a lot of sense. The uh, uh, I've heard that the the um, the again the the lizard brain, the, the 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 what is it the not the neocortex, but the other uh, give give me that. Phraseology for that. Yeah, uh, it also reacts well to stories. As a matter of fact, stories are called stories because they're stored well in the brain. Is that is that an, another faction in uh, in in sales to yeah. be able to? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so the importance, you know, every sales training tells you that you need to create a good story, uh, and I, I can explain to you why very simply by the existence of the primal brain. So now, Bill, I'd like you to close your eyes just for one second and imagine you have in front of you a nice, perfect yellow lemon. Now, I'd like you to perceive this lemon and imagine that you're smelling the outside zest of that lemon. So that lemon is covered with oil, so it has a very tasty, uh, smelly uh, taste or smelly uh, odor of the zest of the lemon. Now, imagine cutting that lemon in half now. And further imagine slicing that, uh, a quarter inch slice of that lemon. Now slowly bring that slice of lemon in your mouth and now take a deliberate bite into the meat of that lemon. So now you should be able to feel the juice of the lemon reach the tip of your tongue and the back of your teeth. 
And now I'm going to ask you, if you've done this exercise properly, what's happening in your mouth? Again, you have to uh, play the, the game. It's hard to do that on the radio. But if you really play the game, if you really try to imagine that slice of lemon in your mouth, guess what? 99.9% .9 of the people who do that for about 20 to 30 seconds, they're starting to salivate, right? Why mm -hmm. is that? It's because if I told you the story properly, your primal brain was made to believe that you have that slice of lemon in your mouth. No, the primal brain does not differentiate reality from a good story. And that's why stories are so effective in sales and marketing. It's because they create a pseudo world, a pseudo sensory impression in the brain that makes people believe the story is real. And of course, the beauty of a story is you master the emotion that people will experience. Why? Because by the time you deliver the punchline in the story, you know what it's going to do because you practice the story. So stories are very effective way of selling because they make the primal brain of your audience believe that the story is real. You know, what else is interesting about that exercise is that um, you strategically involved all of my senses. In other words, uh, you can see the lemon, you can smell the, uh, the the odor of the lemon because of the oil on the outside. You can you can uh, imagine the uh, how it tastes. Uh, so you involved all of my senses. Is that an important uh, faction of a story to involve as many senses as possible? In fact, that's the secret. The secret of good stories is to create a multi-sensory environment around the story that would make it easier for the primal brain to believe. So I need to give you visual clues. You know, you need to picture, you know, when I do this presentation um, live, I have actually a big picture of a nice bright yellow lemon, right? Then I'm going to give you an, uh, a taste um, stimulus. In other words, I'm going to tell you you're feeling the juice of the lemon. And then I'm going to create an olfactory impression, which is the smell of the oil on the lemon. So, yes, that's the secret of good stories. And, in fact, stories are so effective that when you tell stories to little kids, right, imagine you're telling the story to a two- or three-year-old. You can scare them a lot with the story. Why? Because their neocortex, the rational brain, has not yet learned how to mediate the impulses that come from their primal brain. So if you tell them, and the witch entered the castle, and she, oh, the kids will jump off, right? Because they have not learned how that the story is not real. Very interesting. And so now let, let's translate that into if, if you're selling uh, airplane parts <laughs> to uh, you know that you that you manufacture to to a company. Uh, I think it, it seems like a lot of people might uh, focus on the the quality, the uh, cost savings, uh, other things that are kind of non-sensory to the uh, to the primal brain. Is that a mistake? And and should they think of involving more of those senses? In other words, they might just come in with a dry financial pitch. Right. So we know that people buy on emotion and then they justify on rational. So the issue is not to create a rational message. Everybody knows how to do that. That's why you get an MBA. You get an MBA to come up with the rational explanation of the return on investment on your parts, et cetera. But that is not what will trigger the decision in the brain of people. Instead, if you're selling parts for an airplane, you have to play on the fear that your 737 might be grounded for six months 
if they save $5 on a small part, right? In other words, before going yes, into the yes, rational yes. explanation and the ROI, I'm going to first start talking about what's the pain of the buyer. Well, the pain of the buyer at Boeing that's buying that $5 part is that down the road, if the airplane gets grounded, the effect is tremendous. So they may lose their job if they don't choose the right parts. So again, I'm going to play much more on the pain or the fear of the people making that decision. And then I'm going to use the logic later on. In other words, it is more important to first convince the primal brain and then let the primal brain influence the rational brain. So the process of persuasion, we have a whole chapter in our book on this, is based on what the expert called the bottom-up effect of persuasion. In other words, persuasion doesn't work by using logic to create emotion. Persuasion works by using emotion, which then logically later on will let the decision go. So again, so a, we believe it, that... I'm sorry, go right ahead. Yeah. You know, you know, so, uh, yeah, I said that we believe, you know, and, and so does Kahneman and so does Richard Thaler, all these experts that have studied the brain for many, many years, they know that persuasion starts in the primal brain and then radiates to the upper layers in the brain. Mm. So uh, I heard many years ago, um, and uh, I think there's a book to this title also, that selling is a hurt and rescue um, Procedures, in other words, like you say, you, you you don't just rush to the solution. You have to sell the problem. You have to persuade uh, first. Get the the uh, buyer in the um, in the mode of thinking about the problem and buying the problem, if you will, before you can sell the solution. Does that sum up what you're talking about? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. In fact, I don't I don't use exactly the same vocabulary to describe it, but it's pretty much the idea. In fact, the first step in our process is called diagnose the pain. And if you think about it, most salespeople believe that selling is more about talking than listening. But in reality, if you have, first of all, this applies when you have a chance to meet the customer face to face. But the idea is this, is if you're trying to influence somebody and you're in front of them, then you should spend more time asking them questions and listening to them talk than talking. In other words, this is kind of the fallacy of the idea of selling. In other words, most people, when they are in a position to try to influence, they think of themselves that they need to talk more to influence people. And that's a big mistake because, that, you know, the influencing people is first about helping them diagnose their pain. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, recently I was in the market to replace my car. I gave my car uh, to my son and I needed to get a new car. And I went to the Porsche dealership, I went to the Mercedes dealership, I went to BMW, I went to Volkswagen, uh, I went to Lexus, I went to all these different places. And I didn't really know what kind of car I needed. But I was going to move uh, to a higher altitude place, probably move out of the Bay Area. And a four-wheel drive would have been interesting. Now, I, you know, I work out a lot, I bicycle, etc. So I needed a car where I could fit a whole bunch of stuff then I didn't need a very fast or very expensive car because the reality is I spend my life in an airplane. So I only log about 5,000 miles, maybe even less on my car a year. Uh, I have also several motorcycles. So I went to all these dealerships. Now at the Porsche dealership, I heard about their new hybrid engine. That's what the sales guy talked to me about. Now I happen to know quite a little bit about 
engines of cars because I sold supercomputers to Porsche many years ago. Uh, so I think I knew almost as much as the sales guy on his hybrid engine, which by the way, for a Porsche doesn't make any sense because anybody who can afford a Porsche doesn't need uh, to save money on the gas, right? So then at the Mercedes dealership, I heard about all the new design of the safety features, et cetera. Now I ride motorcycles, safety is not my number one issue when I buy a car, and et cetera, et cetera. Every time I visited those guys, you know what? Not one single of those salespeople asked me a question. And they should have asked me, so why do you need to replace your car? You know, how big is your family? So they could figure out if I need a two-doors two or four-door car. Then they should ask me, do I really need a four-wheel drive? They should ask me how much you know, storage I need because, you know, when I carry my bicycles, for example, do I need a hitch behind? But none of them asked me questions. None of them helped me diagnose my pain. What was my pain when I, you know, was buying this car? And my pain down the road is, you know, I had to come to the conclusion about what were the, all those negative emotions that drive my choice of car. And it had to do with, I didn't want an expensive car. Why? Because again, li I mean, literally, I don't get in my car that often. I needed a car where I could pull a trailer so I could put my motorcycles on the trailer. But again, none of them did that. All of them focused on their own message. In other words, all their messages were about who we are, you know, Porsche, they, 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 they told me about the performance of their car, etc. Now, at the end of the day, at 65 miles an hour, I'm not sure I need a Porsche, right? Uh, and I'm married, so it's not like I need a great, you know, an appealing car. So, again, the bottom uh, of this is when people try to persuade, they believe that they have to talk. And we don't, I don't believe that. I believe that the best persuaders are people who can listen. And it's the people that will do the best diagnostic, people that can come up with what are the best questions you can ask your customers to help them realize that they don't need a fast car. Right? Yes. And then, I did, by the yes. way, just at the end of my story, you know, I ended up buying one of the smallest four-wheel drive that exists. So I had only two options, the BMW X1 and the Volkswagen Tiguan. I ended up buying the Tiguan because, and by the way, they also helped me realize that, you know, I have a house in San Francisco and some of those old Victorian houses are very narrow, the garages. So I could not fit, I could not even fit the Porsche. But I had to realize that by myself. In fact, I, you know, the, the Porsche dealership let me drive our car around the blocks and et cetera. And I tried to come and park it at my place and it didn't fit. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> there was no way I could fit it in that space. But do you think that the guy would have told me, well, you live in San Francisco, you know, did you check how big your garage is? The guy never asked me the question. So again, the step one of the process of persuasion is do not talk too much. Build enough rapport to your, with your customers so that they will be willing to respond to your questions. But then demonstrate your expertise not by what you say, but by what you ask for, the quality of your questions. In other words, you're going to appear like an expert not by what you say, but by the fact that your customer realizes that, wow, this guy knows a lot. He's asking me all the right questions, and he forces me to think about all these things that I didn't know before. And if you do that properly, by the way, you will remind in your mind of your customers that they have some strong negative emotions that they were not even aware of before. And then, of course, later on, when it will be your time to sell, then you will demonstrate that you're the best one, you're the number one, 
you're the expert that will be able to eliminate their pain better than any of your competitors. So again, the, the bottom line of this is selling is not about selling. Influencing is not so much about influencing. Selling is more about diagnosing the pain of the customer for 80% and then selling for only 20%. But when you sell, then you have to demonstrate that you know, you have the perfect key that will unlock these negative emotions that they have. Patrick Renwazi, uh, thank you so much for joining me once again today. The name of the book is The Persuasion Code, How Neuromarketing Can Help You Persuade Anyone, Anywhere, Anytime. Of course, available on Amazon, wherever you buy your books. Again, The Persuasion Code. Patrick, thank you once again. Uh, great information and great tips, and look forward to the next time we speak. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for listening to Exit Coach Radio. 